This is the current federal tax developments for the week of January the 24th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're going to talk this week about a few things that went on here in the area of federal taxes. Specifically, let's start out looking at the fact that the IRS has issued the promised guidance that updates the substantially equal payment rules for those that are taking distributions from an IRA or qualified plan that otherwise would have been subject to the premature distribution rules, the substantially equal payment program rules, if they take their payments over a five years or until the year after they attain 59 and a half, they are considered to be not taking premature distributions, but the distributions had to be taken under a method that is geared to give us substantially equal payments. As the IRS changed the life expectancy tables and the regulations that took effect this year, those new revised regulations for minimum required distributions, the IRS said, well, yeah, we got to go back and relook at this because those tables are definitely involved in this calculation. We'll talk about what they've let us do, what it appears our options are. We also have some interesting things that came out this year, or I should say this week, on final forms and final instructions. First, we have the final version of the basis reporting form. We want to discuss that again for S-Corporation shareholders. And I want to go back over that because that seems to have been something that has a lot of interest. And maybe you were thinking, well, it was only a draft. Because it was only a draft, they, they won't really do that. Uh, hate, to, hate to burst your bubble, but they did it. And it will be on this year's return. So we want to go back and take a look at that just in case you had kind of decided, I'm going to ignore that, because it's just a draft. Well, no longer just a draft. Also, the IRS clarified how to report PPP loan forgiveness on the Schedule M3, or Schedule M2, I should say, of Form 1120-S. They went ahead and added to the guidance that was in the draft form, uh, dealing with a couple of issues that people who had read the draft and the IRS's position on how the expenses related to the PPP loan forgiveness should be treated. They went back, reread that, you know, said, hey, wait, wait, we, we got some issues. And they've clarified two points. I want to discuss the two points they clarified. Finally, the IRS has completed its guidance, you know, in essence. They had promised us back when they issued Revenue Procedure 2021-48 that dealt with uh, how you could recognize timing of your PPP loan forgiveness, which is very significant for basis issues in an S-corporation, very significant for at-risk issues if you're an interest in a partnership. They've now clarified how we are to report if we are going to be reporting under that revenue procedure a required statement that will be attached to the forms. And they talk about the nature of that, what needs to be in there. Interestingly enough, this, and it was, you know, we were told this was going to happen in the actual initial revenue procedure. Normally, though, this is the sort of thing that's in the procedure itself. It is kind of interesting why, because it's not going to be different for any form type, why they weren't ready to release this with the procedure, but were ready to release it a few, what would be a couple of weeks later when they released the draft 1040 instructions. So we'll talk about that. Now we have final instructions for all affected entities. And as a practical matter, this has the most major impact on S-corporations and partnerships. So we have those final 
instructions out now. So we're going to talk about what exactly they want you to attach to the return. And we will uh, discuss, you know, what may be the consequence of not doing so. See how that goes. But that that's in play. So let's start out with notice 2022-6. This came out on the 18th. And this was an update to the substantially equal payment provision, right? So we have substantially equal payments. That program, as I said, it's used because you have a taxpayer. Most often we see it used with an IRA, but it could be used with a balance in a qualified retirement plan. It's a defined contribution plan. We just don't see that. Plans don't generally do this unless they are plans of closely held entities and you know, they would allow for this sort of a payout because the only participants are ever going to be the owner, maybe the owner's spouse. So it's not something to have to worry about for rank and file because most plans wouldn't really want to go down this route or at least would want to restrict it in some form. They got to do it in a way that's not discriminatory, but they really wouldn't want to mess with this for the rank and file. So you're not going to see it a lot in plans, but the way these rules work, we they are always phrased in terms of a qualified retirement plan. And then you get this side note that an IRA is treated in the same fashion. So if you read it, you're going to think, wait, wait, this only applies like profit sharing plans. It's like this doesn't tell me what to do about my IRA. Yeah, it does tell you what to do about your IRA. The IRS modified, you may remember, the, the minimum required distribution regulations. That was something that was proposed uh, back early in the last administration that they wanted to update the life expectancy tables. Uh, the IRS issued proposed regs that would do that with new tables. Those regulations went final uh, at the during early in 2020 or in 2020. And we, they were originally going to, for the proposed regulations, have been effective for the year following. The year they went final, but the IRS delayed them by one year due to complaints by financial institutions that it was too complicated for them to you know, deal with that in their computer systems because they also were dealing with the SECURE Act. So for various reasons, it got kicked to 22. But one thing that they said when those regulations were issued as part of the discussion in the preamble was that the IRS was going to have to update the substantially equal payment options for these payments made by a ta to a taxpayer prior to age 59 and a half, where they're going to be able to escape the premature distribution penalty. But in order to do so, they have to take a series of substantially equal payments from the retirement plan. And those substantially equal payments have to continue for the longer of five years or the year following until the year the taxpayer reaches age 59 and a half. Now, these rules are very strict. If you mess it up at all, I mean, if you're a dollar over or a dollar under, they go back and they essentially have a recapture of all the penalties you didn't pay in the prior years. So you definitely don't want to mess up these numbers. And the mechanics of these numbers uh, basically were kind of set up and we had rulings in the past and the prior governing ruling and tables were found in Revenue Ruling 2002-62 and they were based on the older required minimum distribution tables. Now we've got this update in Notice 2022-6. By the way, a little snide, side note here, maybe even snide note. Uh, I find it funny that the IRS jumps back and forth officially in whether these single-digit notices, rulings, procedures are considered 
one digit, like in this case, it says it's 2022-6, or are they two? You'll see others that will do 2022-06. This one was actually funny because the actual file name on the IRS website is a 06, but the notice itself says it's six. So whether there's a leading zero or not, you're probably going to see it both ways. I'm not sure I'm that worried about it. They started doing that last year. Uh, again, it, it's kind of interesting just from one from somebody who deals in this all the time. It's just interesting. Like, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure why you changed it last year, and I'm not sure why you're not consistent. But, okay, that's, that's one of those little things you notice. Accountants like consistency, and this obviously is a bit of a non-inconsistent consistency, shall we say. Now, as I note, they promised this guidance uh, in those regulations, and they came out, though, back in 2020. And we went all the way through 2021, and we hadn't seen this. And now we've made our way into 2022, and this guidance didn't appear until January. Now, because of that, it didn't appear until into 2022. I, I think that may have influenced a couple of things here, and I suspect there was a debate going on about how, how we should handle this. Because in some cases, one of the methods you can use, you know, there are basically three methods provided that will count, right? Three methods that, that will be considered substantially equal payments by the IRS. Some of those calculations result in a payment that doesn't change from year to year. The life expectancy is set and it just does not change from year to year, right? We just do it. Others, the other one, you know, the, the one that, quite often gets used, uh, which is the one people are used to from their minimum distribution rules for IRAs, is people go back and go to the standard minimum distribution table and take the divisor. Now, I think the IRS was facing a potential problem here. The people who set up, let's say, five years ago, they were age 50, so they're in the middle of their payout stream, and they set up the truly equal payment program, right, where there is a fixed amount they withdraw from this IRA account every year, and they're going to keep doing that until they attain age 59 and a half. Well, they were told at the very beginning, this is exactly the amount you take every year. The other people, let's say, who are doing the minimum required distribution, they're told every year go to the table that's going to be in the IRS publication, obtain the right divisor, you know, not the, it won't actually be in their publication, but it's in there, in these regulations. There's a divisor that you can find. And, you know, you'll just divide by that, divide by one of those life expectancy tables, looking up the right combo. And that that will tell you, you know, what what you need to divide by. So I think there was a concern that if they required the new table, people that had used the original amortization and who had set up their IRA account to be perfect, they had dialed in the number they wanted. And now you were going to go back and you were going to change that number. And that number would generally go down, right? So if they had to go back and recalculate, they were going to see a change. A lot of people wouldn't change. And some of those who had to change would not be happy about the change, right? It would be a different number and somewhat lower than what they had expected. Other people using the you know yearly life expectancy calculation are going to probably just go back and look in their tax service right? They'll go to their CPA, we'll go to the tax service, we'll just recompute the number from the current table and, you know, won't use the old table. So if we require the old table for the old uh, payment streams, then, you know, they're going to get it wrong. So the IRS had to try to figure out how this would go. 
Well, what ends up happening is we have an interesting set of effective dates, right? Generally, the general effective date for this ruling, right? Generally, the guidance replaces the guidance in Revenue Ruling 2002-62 and notice 2004-15 for any series of payments commencing on or after January 1st of 23. Notice that's 23, right? Not until next year would this absolutely apply. Okay, That's your first caveat. However, then it goes on and says, and it may be used for a series of payments commencing in 22. So if your client starts taking payments this year, then you actually could use the old the old rules or the new rules. And again, the theory there being that you might have been setting up a client who was going to take monthly payments beginning in January. They may have already set up, put the IRA, put the amount in the IRA account to get the payment they wanted. And by the way, that is how this works. You know, you, you can divide your IRA. These rules apply to a specific account. These are account specific, not overall IRA specific, all IRAs specific, which is also interesting because in most cases with IRAs, remember we keep treating them as one, as one big blob. And the uh, one other place we tend to treat them as separate for the rollover rules. Remember after the Bobrow uh, case back in 2014, we found out that no, 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 you don't treat them that way, right? That, that was the one the IRS managed to win the case and neither the IRS nor apparently counsel for the taxpayer realized that the IRS's own publication had been saying for a long time that you could treat each account separately. That was kind of funny. Um, turns out that, yes, I know law beats publications, but it's at best wildly embarrassing for the service to win that case under that, under that method. So in that case, they actually gave everybody an out for a year and didn't really enforce that case till the beginning of the following year. And my understanding is that when they finally, you know, did the, you know, whenever you do a tax court case, you know, they tell them, go back in and, you know, the court says that this is how it is to be done. The parties are to go, you know, compute the proper tax, right? The court does not sit down and do all the computation and come to an agreement. Uh, my report I got was the IRS and the taxpayer came to an agreement to just kind of let this ride. I'm not sure if they did that by, you know, settling and claiming, oh, well, the settlement, the taxpayer is going to agree not, not to go to appeals, not to go to the Court of Appeals as long as the IRS, you know, waves this. But anyway, it was embarrassing, so the service dodged it. So this is one of those cases where the service could have been an embarrassing position. A taxpayer who took, who set up his payments, you know, ended up setting up his payments and again, under this method, I might have a million dollars in my IRAs, right? million dollars in my IRAs. But maybe I want to take a, a payment stream that's not going to be on that, based on that whole million. That would be larger than I want to be coming out. So I can basically roll a portion of that to a separate IRA account that would be used to compute this number. And if I'm using, you know, uh, basically the fixed amortization method or fixed annuitization method, I can essentially dial in the amount of money I want. I can back into how much needs to go into that IRA at the beginning to start this correctly and get me my payment stream that I want. So understanding that, right, that, that's how people set these things up sometimes is they, they know how much they need to take, let's say, until they get past age 59 and a half, and they don't want to take extra so they dial in the perfect amount to move to their IRA account for this funding. In that case, this thing matters. So here comes the catch. So here it is. So again, 
In 22, therefore, you could either use the new tables, which would essentially give you a lower payout, which means backdoor, I need more in that account. I need, let's say, and since I'm going to get a lower payout out of the account because I'm, I'm deemed to live longer, I'm going to have to have a bigger account. And more of my account has to be devoted to the payment stream, right? That I might do th this time. Or I could go ahead and devote the smaller amount and use the old amortization table. I've got the choice, the rates this year. Beginning in 23, I've got to use the new life expectancy tables, and that's how I dial this in. But in 22, we can choose. Now, what about those ones, though, that started back in 21 or started in, let's say, 20, you know, in 2018, whatever, and they're still continuing today, right? I mean, in theory, you could start this payment stream uh, at any age. Uh, you might need to keep it forever, and it would be a very, very small payout because it'd be difficult to get a huge IRA account balance in your IRA at age 17, but, you know, whatever. Anything's theoretically possible. What they tell us is if that's going to happen, right, if we're going to basically, if we have an existing payment stream, the ruling tells us as well, right? So, you know, in this particular structure, they say, in the case of a series of payments commencing in a year prior to 2023, using the requirement dist required minimum distribution method, if the payments to a series are calculated by substituting the single life table, the joint and last survivor table, or the uniform life table from this notice, because those are your options, right? Which means the updated tables, right? For a corresponding table that was used under the old ruling, then the substitution will not be treated as a modification. That would trigger having to pay back all those old penalties. So what it's telling us is, if you used, if you used the, either the fixed amortization or fixed annuitization method, and your payment stream started before 2023. 20, okay, let's go. There's basically be two pa possibilities here. If it started if it started before 22, you were under the old table, and essentially you have to stay with the old table under those two methods. However, if you were using the requirement minimum distribution method, which is kind of using an extension of the method we use when you get to age 72, if you're using that method, you can't, now just start using the new tables. You can convert to the new tables or you could keep the old tables. For 22, while you have a choice of which way to start, whichever choice you make this year for the fixed amortization method or the fixed annuitization method, right, where you're essentially computing a fixed number of some sort, whatever you compute for that, that computation uh, you know, whatever table you use, that's the table you, you have to use all the way through. And if you started your distributions in 21 or earlier, then you have to continue to use that amount you calculated before. So that's the basis of these three issues. Now, the other interesting thing that got changed in here subtly, it used to be that the interest rate you would use for the fixed amortization or fixed annuitization method uh, had to be no more than 120% of the federal midterm rate, right, for either of the two months immediately preceding the month in which the distribution begins. Now they added a floor. They added a floor here. So that it's going to be, it, can't, it has to be, in essence, right, 
no more than the greater of that same 120% calculation or 5%. Meaning that if 120% of the midterm rates, let's say that that worked out in the tables that the midterm rates were, you know, 120% was 4.1% and 4.6%, you could still set your amortization using 5%, right? The higher interest rate could still be used. I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, that, that gives you a little more flexibility. It allows a, you know, a little probably lower funding if you want to, or I should say higher funding into their higher amounts over, lower payouts. There are various ways you can make that work. So it is there. It is an option. So be aware of that. That, that was changed. But as I say, payments in 22 optional. Payments in 20, payments 21 and earlier, keep using the old tables or, or your, your initial calculation. Keep using the old tables, the old tables for life expectancies on the minimum distribution uh, method. However, if you are using the minimum required distribution method where you recalculate every year, then you do have the choice to swap over to the new tables. Swapping to the new tables is not a problem. Now, it would appear once you make that swap, there is nothing that allows you to go back right? It simply says that changing from the old tables to the new tables is not an impermissible change in the payment method. Does not say you could go back. So I think you do need to be aware that your clients probably can't go back in that case. Okay, let's go on now and talk about something we talked about before, but I'm going to tell you that this is final. Uh, Form 7203, that that went final on the 19th of January just before the S-Corporation stuff all went final, for the most part, the form itself. It was previously discussed, this form, when it was proposed and when it was released in draft form. We talked about it twice. It is essentially a form that is that must be filed with the 1040. This does not go with the S-Corporate term. Must be filed with the 1040 for a shareholder in any year where they are claiming deduction for an, their share of an aggregate loss from the S-Corporation, so overall loss, or, parenthetically, it talks about, or there is an aggregate loss from a prior year. So you have disallowed losses due to basis from a prior year. You have to attach it to the return. In that case, uh, prepare the form, attach the return. Do it if you receive a non-dividend distribution from the corporation. So any sort of distribution that didn't go on a 1099 DIV. Because it did, because it, the only thing that would go on 1099 DIV is a distribution that came from ENP or that you elected to treat as coming from ENP assuming the corporation had EMP, right? That's key. You dispose of stock in the corporation in any manner, whether or not there is a gain recognition event. Doesn't matter. You dispose of the stock. You have to do this report because normally if there was no gain recognition, there's going to be a carryover basis. So you're going to compute the basis that the other party in the carryover basis will pick up. Or you received a loan repayment from an S corporation. Any repayment on an S loan. Again, if you haven't looked at that form, I strongly suggest you look at it. It is in this week's publication, this week's printed version, let's say, or PDF version of the articles. So you can look at that. You have a section to comp- to compute the shareholder's basis. You have a section where you also do a comp- you, you disclose the amount and type of every debt. Is it open account? Is it based on a note for every, every loan you've made to the S corporation of the shareholder? And then separately compute the basis for those loans finally compute if there's any repayment on the loan 
And if it's open account debt generally that's still treated as open account because it never went above 25000 at the end of a prior year, if it's open account debt, then you look at net repayment. If it's not open account debt, any repayment, any repayment on the loan, even if you later loan the company more money on the same note, you can't net the two. So that, that's a key issue with that. So basically, that's what you have to do, right, in this issue, right? And then finally, it has a computation of allowed losses, allowable losses, and losses carried to the following year. Now, the IRS suggests, even though you might not have to file it this year because you didn't get a distribution, the S-Corporation showed income, right? You didn't, have, you didn't repay a loan. No, you know, the S-Corporation didn't repay any of your loans, which actually, if you think about it, it's going to be an odd situation. The S-Corporation is profitable, didn't give you any distribution, and didn't use it to repay a loan. It's like, do you? So how many times is that one going to happen? Because remember, if it's a net loss, you got to file this anyway. But in any event, right, I suspect most years you're going to have to file this thing, right? And they suggest even if you don't have to file it, because you know, I mean, at some point your client's going to want money from the S-Corp in some way, shape, or form, repaying loans, doing that sort of thing. At some point, the S-Corp will, pro, you know, and there is a very, there, you know, it's always a possibility the S-Corporation has a loss year. And at some point, your client will get rid of the S, you know, get rid of the S stock. And you're going to have to properly prepare this in those years. So I would strongly suggest you start preparing, you know, this form at this point. And I would also point out for S corporations, we don't have that little nicety we do in partnerships where the regs actually allow us, you know, if it's not feasible, you know, it's not practical to actually go back and recompute the basis from 1962 uh, for the partnership interest this guy owns. We can go ahead and, you know, use methods to estimate that as long as they are reasonably in line with what would have occurred otherwise. And I mean, the reg at least gives us a stamp of approval, even if it's very clear that, you know, it, it technically is the IRS can allow it. Uh, but it gives the court the leeway. The IRS can't unreasonably refuse to allow that. I'm going to think on S corporations, you are going to have to try to argue that you have enough evidence that under a Cohen style argument saying that, look, clearly there is some number that represented basis or represents basis, even if that number is zero, right? There is a number that represents basis to the extent we can give. And remember with Cohen, there's two things. First thing is the fact there is a ba the fact there is some basis out there. Yes, there is definitely a basis. It may be zero, but there's a basis out there. But Cohen also requires you have to show that you can reasonably estimate it. They can be reasonably estimated, which means you're going to need the best information you can get uh, to reasonably estimate that. And what I've actually suggested, we I was talking about this this week with another CPA who does some lecturing in this area, and you know, basically saying probably this weirdly, I know we're all tax people here, and most of us don't stay away from the you know. You know, we're not really into, we're into accounting to the extent we need to be into accounting to make things work on the tax side, but we're not really, let's say, into auditing account, auditing work, uh, reporting work, or certainly not into things like forensic account, forensic auditing, right? Getting things, looking at records. You might want to consider getting a specialist uh, to go back who's used to reconstructing records in a forensic accounting standpoint. And you might want to send them in. Helps to have some auditing background, too. 
because this is kind of like like gap but not really it does follow accounting principles kind of you know the whole basis issue and get as good of evidence as you can get and it's helpful to have somebody who's used to looking at things and trying to get information out of imperfect imperfect data because you're gonna have a ton of that the data will probably be imperfect so especially if the numbers are big you might consider that you know you might consider looking at that seeing if you could invite over, find, find one of your auditing friends who maybe who also is a fraud auditor uh, and see if, you know, in essence, how much would it cost? And they'll probably say, well, how, you know, how much you want to, how much you're willing to pay? And I can tell you how good a set of numbers I can get you, right? I'll get you as good as I can get until we run out of money. And you'll have to make a decision. But I, I think you have to understand, explain to the client, it was their responsibility, not the S-Corps. And by the way, the instructions make this clear. It's the shareholder's responsibility to know their basis, right? The fact they don't have it, you can't blame that on the S-Corp. Not their responsibility. Absolutely not their responsibility. If you believe it is their responsibility, I would ask you to please go find me in the code where it says that. Because it doesn't. Taxpayers have to have books and records. And basis limits the taxpayer's ability to claim income or claim losses on the return. It also impacts the taxpayer's ability to take a distribution without paying tax on it, right? It is a shareholder issue. It is not an S-Corp issue. AAA is an S-Corp issue. Basis is a shareholder issue. Shareholder has to keep it. These instructions make that clear. So explain to them, look, you got to do this. If not, we probably can never claim a loss and every distribution is going to be taxable because the IRS is just going to keep saying you can't prove basis, you can't prove basis. Every distribution is taxable and no loss is deductible to, until you can prove you got basis to take it. So I'd get basis. I'd fig, try to figure it out. Now, a couple of things in the instructions. Now, this first one is S-Corp only. Okay, In the draft forms, and this is from the IRS's final uh, final version of the 2021 instructions for 1120S issued on January the 20th, right? In the draft forms, the IRS had issued, had, had indicated that in essence, if you got a PPP loan, right? And you paid expenses with that loan, right? Which that was, you did, you have to. That's how you got forgiveness, right? There were expenses. Use those expenses to claim a, to be able to get your debt canceled. Now, that debt, per the provision in the package of bills that was the Comprehensive Appropriations Act 2021, Congress ruled that that was not taxable. You may remember we had a long back and forth uh, where the IRS was saying from early on after the CARES Act that these expenses were expenses related to tax-exempt income. As such, under the code, expenses related to exempt income are specifically on the code non-deductible. Therefore, the IRS says, tough luck, you got this PPP loan. The expenses you use to obtain cancellation of the debt are non-deductible. Going back to our Treasury Secretary, that was Tax 101. Okay, so we had that go on all year, right? So they, they finally said, you get to deduct them. Now, what Congress did not say is any reason why, aside from they are deductible, right? Now, Congress can override anything. Remember, you, you can't give a, a get you know you can't make a charitable contribution of a partial int, of a partial interest in an asset. That's basically the rule under the charitable contribution rules have been forever. But then they passed the conservation easement rules. 
Now, the conservation easement rules do not mean that IRS was wrong all along and that partial contributions work, you know, partial interest work. No, that, that's not what it meant. They didn't repeal the prohibition on partial interest. They just gave a specific provision that overrode the general provision and allowed you. And by the way, whenever you're interpreting code uh, for Internal Revenue Code purposes, more specific provisions override more general provisions, right? Yep, you know, let's face it. Section 61 says basically accessions to wealth or income, period, right? Virtually everything else in the code that makes something non-taxable is a more specific treatment of an item which overrides Section 61's general rule. That's how this works. So now we're going to override, right? Now, that might have been unnecessary because certainly that original statement was not non-controversial. Let's say it was, shall we say it was controversial? But Treasury stuck with it, and that was their official position. Now IRS, now the Congress says, we don't really care why, it's deductible, period. That's what we're saying, it's deductible, right? Okay, Congress, you know, Congress did not say that in the CARES Act. Congress has said it now. Unambiguous, now we have an unambiguous statement that these expenses are deductible. Whether that changed prior law or whether that merely was what prior law was actually doing and we just clarified that, Congress didn't actually talk about that at all. They just simply changed it. That's all they did. They put an override provision in there. So it's there. Well, now we got the problem, of course, that when you look at your calculation, this affects S corporations with accumulative earnings and profits, generally affects that group, which would mean they had to have been a C corp before or had somehow got C corp ENP imported via maybe a merger or other sort of, uh, you know, tax-free combination. So, you know, we, we have that, the, the reorganization provisions. If they have that, it matters because payments out, you can only make a distribution from an S-Corp until you run out of AAA. After you run out of the accumulative adjustments account, then if you have accumulated earnings and profits, all future distributions come out of there Future distributions come out of accumulated earnings and profits until you either get some more AAA because you earn money in later years, or you run out of accumulated earnings and profits, after which it goes back to being a standard distribution, right? And it just reduces basis. The charitable runs out of basis. They end up having a gain. So for that interim time period, if we have accumulated earnings and profits, the charitable is going to pay capital. They're going to pay basically tax on, a, on an ordinary qualified dividend even though they may have plenty of basis that could have absorbed a distribution. Now, on the 1120S, we have this weird account called the Other Adjustments Account, OAA. Now, OAA doesn't really exist in the code. You will not find OAA mentioned in the code. It's not there. The code only mentions AAA. But what OAA reminds us, though, is that some things do not impact AAA, and those things that do not we move them back there in other adjustments account. One of the things that does not affect AAA are tax-exempt expenses, right? So tax-exempt expense, tax ex, I should say tax-exempt income. Tax-exempt income does not impact AAA. So that, even though it raises the taxpayer's basis, 
it does not impact the other adjustment account. And because it does not impact OAA, it does not impact, right, the AAA account. So IRS says put that in the column labeled other adjustments accounts on your form, you know, on your form 1120S. And that is found on Schedule M2 and it's found in column D, right? Column A is AAA. Column B is for those 10 people in the world who still have uh, previously taxed income. If they're still PTI, column B is still there. I'm sure there are 10 people out there that have it. Uh, column C is the accumulative earnings and profits, which is what will be dividends when we get to that payout. And finally, the last column is the OAA, which is just, you know, accountants need somewhere to put things. So we gave them somewhere to put things. So that's basically where we end up with. Well, the other thing, parenthetically, it says in 1368, it says that AAA is, you know, not impacted by tax-exempt income, nor the nor expenses related to such income. What happens is, I got two million dollars, right? That's cash. I use that two million dollars to pay wages. The two million dollars is deductible, right? We were told that end of last year. The two million dollars of cancellation of debt, when that happens, that is income, tax-exempt income, right? Well. Your software and, and the form. The form actually tells you on line two, schedule M2, ordinary income from line one, page 21. It goes on line two of schedule M2, and the only column that's not shaded is the AAA column. So your software last year would have taken, computed your income as the total you know, the tax, the total income from the S for the year, it would have excluded the loan forgiveness, right? Would not have counted that, but would have deducted the wages paid with that loan. So let's say we otherwise broke even, I would have, quote, lost $2 million, right? Even though I actually broke even under a regular accounting treatment. Well, the problem is, of course, if I had AAA to start the year, let's say I had a million of AAA to start the year, you know, well, I would still have, I would though not have any AAA at the end of the year, even without any distributions. I would be in the hole. Which means that this year, if I tried to make a distribution, because I've got the cash, right? I didn't use $2 million of cash to pay that those wages. I, I was given the cash to pay the wages. So I actually still have cash lying around. That distribution would not come out of AAA, so if I previously had been a C corporation and I had accumulated earnings and profits not previously distributed, that would be a dividend. Well, the IRS said and told us essentially back, you know, when they did the drafts, that an S corporation should report expenses paid uh, with proceeds from PP loans that were forgiven uh, in column D of line five of schedule M2. Okay. Now, that's interesting, right? Because that freaked people out. Well, what does it mean? How, how could they be there, right? You know, why, why are they going over there? You know, how does that have an impact? And, you know, the other problem was a lot of people didn't do it that way last year. Now, I believed always there was a reasonable basis, if not actually a substantial authority, for moving those expenses under the language of the code section to move them into other adjustments. And so for taxes returns I did last year, I would move them as, as soon as there was cancellation of debt, you would report those as hitting other adjustments account. 
but a lot of people didn't do that. So we're going to enter the year with other adjustments basically being made up of many cases. The loan forgiveness and AAA from last year, including those expenses that we had deducted, right, uh, but it used for that forgiveness. Now, according to the IRS, these instructions, which th this tip wasn't there last year, and it's a tip. It's not technically instruction. So the IRS position would probably be, well, you know, that, that was how it worked last year. You know, it's in the wrong column. So there's the other problem. You know, well, you know, do we have to go back and amend last year's return in order to move that? So we got lots of issues. So here's what the service told us. They said, first thing, okay, let's say your loan's forgiven this year, right? We're going to go like the second draw PP loan. It was forgiven this year. You paid the expenses this year. You are to go ahead and pick up that number, you know, total income, which will have the wages deducted or other expenses deducted. But on the other additions line, on line three, line three, column A, you are to add back. One of your additions will be these expenses used to obtain PPP loan forgiveness. And you will enter them there. Plus, you will then enter them on line six, other reductions for column D, right? So it'll be the same number in both places. That will effectively move it out of AAA, move it into the other adjustments column. That's how the service says. And they basically make, make that very clear here. The third column says, if column A on line two or line four, line four is your, uh, if you're a loss from page one, if either the income or the loss number in column A contains these expenses, these expenses were deducted in arriving at that number, you're to go ahead and make another addition, okay? We are giving you the green light. A lot of people thought, oh, well, no, 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 that's not allowed on that line. You can't do it on that line. Actually, there's not really much way of instructions for that line. Yeah, my theory was, yes, you were clearly allowed to do it there. You just had to be able to explain what you were doing, which was the only way to get the result they were saying and follow the instructions on what to put on line two or line four. But I digress. You know, that, that that's where we end up doing it. So we end up doing that, right? Now, they also say, if column A on line one of the Schedule M2 includes expenses that were paid in a prior year with proceeds from loans that were forgiven this year, then you report that amount in column A on line three or column D on line five, right, of Schedule M2. In essence, you, you add that back, right? You add that back into other adjustments. You subtract it out of AAA. Now, it's not clear if that would actually work if it's wrong to begin the year. Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. It wasn't forgiven this year, but then it depends on how you deem forgiven this year under Revenue Procedure 2021-48, which we'll get to in just a second. But anyway, you're allowed to do that, right? It's the way it would work, right? And, you know, even if that problem relates to amounts paid last year, right? In essence, we paid them last year, we deduct them. So what they're telling us is, let's say we haven't gotten forgiveness on our second draw loan this year. And we are going to choose under Revenue Procedure 2021-48. We're following that. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to choose that we're only going to recognize the forgiveness income when we get formal forgiveness from the uh, Small Business Administration. Well, then this year, we would still keep it there in the other, in AAA, reduced AAA. Next year, when we get that forgiveness, let's say now, I should say this year, 23, we get that forgiveness, then on 23 return, we would go ahead and move it out of that column right, have an other addition, right, and have then other subtraction over on the other adjustments account 
to essentially offset the forgiveness, right? So what's really happening is as soon as the forgiveness shows another adjustment account, we go ahead and we pick this uh, expense up over there as well. Okay, that's what you end up doing. Now, a question becomes, do you have to amend the 2021 return or 2020 return? Assuming you didn't do this and you recognize forgiveness in 20, because remember, if we don't recognize forgiveness till 21, then there's no problem. It tells us what to do. But do we have to go back if we recognize forgiveness in 20 and, you know, we paid expenses and so we have a AAA balance or say a AAA balance that has those expenses out of it starting the year. You know, they were it's already been reduced by those. And we have an other adjustments account currently that's sitting there with the uh, loan forgiveness as a positive number. Do we have to go back and amend the return? My answer is no. This is an informational item on the return. You should document how you're computing it. But it does not have an impact on a tax number on the 1120S. Now, where it will have an impact on the on the 1120S is for whether they should have filed those 1099 DIVs they did. If they actually paid an amount out, if you actually made a distribution in 2020, that distribution triggered a taxable dividend because it was in excess of AAA. It really wasn't, or it wasn't at least to the extent you thought it was because those expenses shouldn't have been in there. So you had more AAA than you thought you did. That means you are in a position now where you need to amend the 1099 DIVs. Well, when we always talk about whether you have to amend. Technically, you don't have to amend, right? But those 1099s are going to be wrong. And theoretically, you could face penalties for having erroneous 1099s and have sent those out. So you probably want to fix them. Secondly, the bigger issue is going to be at the shareholders end. They have paid tax on that dividend, which they shouldn't have. Now, that's one problem. The second problem is that amount they treat as a dividend, they did not use to reduce or S stock basis. However, it should have been used to reduce or S stock basis. So you might think, well, but they pay tax on it, so don't they get credit? No. This is their mistake, not the IRS's. You know, if, the, if you do something based on an IRS required change, an IRS, uh, you know, let's say position, clear position in a revenue ruling, and last year they were just silent about this, right? If you do something based on an IRS position, and, you know, for that reason you picked it up as a dividend because, let's say, at the time a regulation said that's what you had to do. Now, four years later, the regulation is ruled invalid. That shouldn't have been a dividend. The IRS doesn't get a win here by being able to say, ah, well, that reduced your basis. Tough luck, guy. The tough luck you picked, tough luck you picked it up there. They would be bound under what the courts will call either under the specific provisions that deal with this issue or under a generic issue that the courts refer to as duty of consistency uh, to allow that additional basis. But in this case, that's not the problem, right? You, you know, you quote unquote fouled up the calculation, at least in the IRS's view. And so, in theory, they, they could go down that path. So, probably any shareholders will want to re- amend their return. Obviously, if only talking about $5, who cares? But if you're talking about a significant number where they would care about losing that basis, then they probably will care about having paid the tax. So, you probably want to amend that return. Okay. One other thing that happened, and the last set of instructions to contain this were the Form 1120S instructions that finalized on the 20th, uh, the 
1065 instructions finalized on the 14th of January. They also contained this. And the 1040 instructions actually came out in December. And I'm not really sure why the 1040 instructions even have this. But we'll talk about this because it's an interesting statement we're going to attach. And potentially there's an at-risk issue with a C Corp, or I should say a Schedule C for an individual, but that's gonna be that's gonna be odd and really messy that that would ever have occurred. And gonna be really fun to tie down. I know at risk can apply to Schedule C setups because it can, but you know how exactly it's yeah it's it's just an interesting mess. So in any event, let's go with this right. Revenue procedure 2022-48 or 2021-48 should be 22 should be 21. Uh, contained a reference to having updated reporting information on the instructions, eventually on the instructions, uh, though you could use the procedure without. What was that revenue procedure? If you remember that procedure, it was the one that came out and said, people have been wondering all along, how do we report PPP loan forgiveness? Right? When when is the loan deemed forgiven? When do we pick up that taxable income? And that that's really important. Let's take an S-Corp. For an S-Corp, that debt that was borrowed by the S-Corporation does not give shareholders any basis. So we're spending that $2 million creating deductible expenses, but we don't have any basis for the funds that went in to pay that. So that means at some point, it's very possible that the S-Corp would have cash to make distributions, but we wouldn't have basis to absorb the distributions or those wages will create a loss in excess of our basis because they were paid with that debt and we don't get credit for that debt. Now, in a partnership, we'd get credit for the debt. We'd get basis. However, it was non-recourse, not qualified non-recourse because it couldn't be. So, therefore, we wouldn't be at risk for it, which would also tend to limit our distribution, our base, our ability to deduct it, any loss, and could cause any distribution to require us to recapture prior losses that have been deducted. So generally a mess. This this mismatch of potential mismatch of timing is a mess because a lot of people assumed that you couldn't recognize a tax exempt income until the SBA formally said, yep, we agree the debt is forgiven. Well, the IRS in the revenue procedure essentially said, Nah, nah, that, 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 we're not going to force that, right? And the AICPA had mentioned this too, and it asked them, said, you know, there were the issues of, especially for those with loans below 150000 of the SBA and the bank had nothing to do. Once you submit that application, as long as you actually got the loan, right? As long as your loan was below 150, it's only, you know, you only got to verify your loan was below 150, and you signed the page right, and you filled in all the lines. So that's called a merely ministerial duty. In that case, if there's only thing left is a merely ministerial duty, then as you spent the money, the theory would be you should have gotten forgiveness. It wasn't as clear once your loan got above 150, especially at the end of 2020. Uh, loans above 150,000, yes, they didn't seem to be looking at them in any detail, but it wasn't like the where the law now said they they basically had no right to look at them. So. You know, that that one, a little iffier, if you could say it was merely ministerial duty, if that in reality they're not doing anything, is that maybe. 
And remember, at that point, loans above $2 million, they were saying we're going to review every single one of them in detail. Now, we know all of that changed during 21 over time administratively. We know all that stuff changed, right? But still, you know, so the question became, you know, when do you pick that up? The IRS basically made a very taxpayer-friendly ruling in revenue in Revenue Procedure 2148, and they said, you have your choice. You can either recognize forgiveness as you spend the expenses, which would have been the mere ministerial duty theory, right? In essence, once you spent the money, the debt was forgiven, right? The fact that you had to, you know, fill in a form, that didn't somehow move the issue to the next year. That income was 21 income under a merely ministerial duty view. And remember, theoretically, income has to be picked up in the proper year. You don't get to choose. But in this case, they're going to give us a bit of a choice. The IRS said you could alternatively pick it up as of the date that they filed the application with the bank. I suspect some people had been saying, well, you know, you, you can't really do it. But once you apply, then it becomes a really ministerial duty for the bank forward. That, you know, that, that it was some work for the taxpayer, but it was nothing after that. So that date could be used or they just didn't quite understand the SBA had to prove this thing. Finally, they, they said, or you could choose the date that the SBA actually gives you the full forgiveness. And you... As long as you do it consistently, you pick one of those three options, and the revenue procedure provides that the service will accept that as the proper timing of the debt forgiveness, right? And will, in essence, test under that. If they examined you, they, they would look for that information. It did provide that if you use the first two and the SBA came back and only approved a smaller amount, that you have to go back and amend the prior year. That is a requirement of the procedure that you have to amend the prior year to restate things, okay? That's what the IRS said. And so basically, they said, to quote them from the procedure, the IRS will publish form instructions for 2021 filing season that will detail how taxpayers can report consistently with this procedure. At the time, they said, however, taxpayers do not need to wait until the instructions are published to apply this revenue procedure. As I said, that's a little odd because normally... You know, if there's something you're going to need to attach to the return, right? And so a lot of people read this as saying, well, it's going to be very minimal. There's not going to be much. Maybe you'll have to label it on the return some way. But it seems like it shouldn't be much because in every other situation I can think of, when the IRS has said you have to attach a statement, that statement and the requirement to attach it was found in the regulation or the revenue procedure. You, know, you can look back at the required uh, attachment of a statement if you're going to be a real estate professional, you make that election to combine them all as one. There's a required statement in the reg. There's a required statement in the reg. If you're going to, for basis purposes, deduct your on your S-corporation basis on your individual return, you want to be able to, uh, you know, first take deductible expenses before having to count non-deductibles as reducing basis. There's a specific election in the reg for that, right? Or if you like, you know, there was a rule there for those who had forgotten to attach the uh, combine all my rentals into one for real estate pros. And you discover that there's a revenue procedure that lets you fix that. And it has required attachment there, right? It's in the procedure. It's not push over in the instructions. This time, though, apparently, 
what that sentence was, what that paragraph is now being used to, is they have now moved a required statement into the instructions, right? There are required attachments. So if you are using, and now here's the other quirk. The instructions seem to assume you have to use this revenue procedure. Now, technically, it's a revenue procedure that provides us with a safe harbor. It never said any of these were appropriate, right? Now, the instructions now seem to be saying that implied, oh, yeah, yeah, th these are the only possibilities for recognition. You couldn't possibly have any other that would be considered valid. I, I mean, I would think a court would go to one of these three, but I can't say for sure, and I certainly can't say for sure which one a court would go to if it actually was ever, if the IRS had made it an issue instead of issuing the revenue procedure, or if you didn't follow the procedure if they litigate it. But nevertheless, we now have a required attachment, right? So you attach a statement to the return, right, for each tax year where you're applying this revenue procedure, right? And so you do that, right? The statement should include the following information for the loan, the S corporation's name, address, and employer ID number, right? A statement of the corporation, you know, which method are you doing the first, second, or third option in the revenue procedure, right, as applicable? The amount of the tax exempt income from forgiveness of the loan that you're treating as received or accrued during the taxable year. And finally, they want you to disclose uh, if your forgiveness has been granted as of year in. Now, there there is a different required attachment. If it, if you use the first method, you're taking it as it's being as you're making the expense payments, and then it turns out that you don't get full forgiveness. There's a second op, There's a second statement on that amended return, which interestingly enough is only discussed in the 1120 S instructions, which. Okay, it's a little weird place to hide it. Hopefully, they're going to re revise, but it's kind of weird. There's not really an 1120X, 1120SX, I should say. It's kind of one of those things, right? There's not really a separate amended form for 1120. Uh, technically, it'd be the prior year's return with the box checked amended. Uh, and there's not going to be in those instructions, which is weird, but okay. Uh, are you supposed to go back and read these instructions, I guess? I'm not sure. That's why you put in a revenue proc IRS. That's why you don't put in the instructions. But in any event, you know, there is that. I would certainly put that on there if you have to go back and amend 20. Because you did that, but you didn't get the full thing. You didn't get the full uh, exclusion this year. Right. They do make it clear you do not have to amend the prior return as long as you report it consistently. Right. If you used a method that was in line with what they said there. You don't have to go do anything to the prior return. So you don't have to go put this a statement on a 20 return. Don't go amend the 20 returns and start putting the statement on it, right? Unless you're going to amend the 20 return to change to one of these methods. But if on the original return, you, you know, you went down that, you know, it's only a ministerial duty, right? Or you didn't pick it up last year, but it's not going to have any impact. Nobody got distributions as a basis. Nobody had losses they couldn't take, right? Everything's going to be washed out this year. We got full forgiveness of everything this year. There's no need to amend last year because I'm going to change anything. Fine, we're good. And we can do that because picking it up, you know, delaying it until formal forgiveness was given was an acceptable method under that ruling. So we're fine with that. 
but do realize these attachments. The same language is required for a 1065 as well as required for a 1040. Now, a 1040 to me is a little more interesting because, again, aside from a really going to be fun to play with at risk, right? So you're, you're attaching that at risk statement then apparently with your Schedule C if you got this loan. I'm sure you all did that last year, right? You attach the at risk. You had amounts not at risk in your proprietorship. Well, yeah, probably didn't attach that, did you? Well, any event, because that's the only way I see it would have an impact on this. Because, again, we don't really have the basis issue on the Schedule C. Uh, we do have at-risk issues, potentially. But, yeah, it, it's just kind of interesting. It obviously is a loan signed by the individual. Uh, there is a total amount, you know, what they could obtain. But, yeah, and even there, I think even there it's going to be, I think you're still going to be at risk. I think if you actually dig into the terms of the note, I think you're still there. So I have no idea how it would impact these. In essence, what impact does the timing have on a sole proprietor? I don't think it does, right? You know, except, well, because you still, you deducted the expenses anyway, right? It doesn't impact that. So again, I'm not sure what the impact would be. But in theory, attach this to the S Corporation return or the Schedule C. For the Schedule C, I'm suspecting, I'm just going to go with when I got formal forgiveness because I'm sure I'm not going to go back and, you know, worry about last year's return or change last year's return unless you've got some odd situation where it will matter and you won't have the SBA forgiveness letter by the end of, you know, you didn't have the forgiveness letter by the end of 22. But otherwise, seems weird. In any event, I am told that, you know, at least some tax software providers have these statements already there. They're in the instructions, so... Tax software providers love instructions, so they tend to get instructions right. It's the other stuff they foul up. Uh, so anyway, remember that. You're going to key it. It also means you better tell your tax software about the forgiveness because that's going to probably trigger this reporting. So you have to tell the tax software the forgiveness, right, how much you got forgiven. That's to be reported, assuming it's going to do the statement. You have to tell which method you're using, right, and any amounts of expenses, etc., all that stuff. So keep that in mind. So this has kind of been instructions week, but good. We're getting to time to start preparing returns, so I guess it's right. And yes, welcome to the filing season, because as of January 24th, it's time. The uh, electronic filing system should be open. I do realize you have a bunch of forms the IRS hasn't released, so I suspect there's no returns you can actually file. But theoretically, if you had that really, really simple return, that was only a 1040 and a W-2 and nothing else, you, that, that one can be filed now, right? We're good. We're on the 24th. We can file that. Or at least we'll be on the 24th. I will post this on Sunday. So that'll be the day before. But, you know, if you're listening to this on Sunday, you really listen early. Uh, yeah, you can run out tomorrow morning then if you're listening on Sunday the 23rd and, you know, get this stuff filed. Otherwise, you're listening to it in the week of the 24th. You know, you're, you're going to basically just, you can start doing it now. It's begun. Aren't you thrilled? So we're ready to go. As always, you can contact me, Ed Zollers at CurrentFullTextDevelopments.com if you have questions. Uh, I am following the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Minnesota, Washington, and keeping an eye on the site that Idaho has. Uh, if you have any questions, you can post them there. If I see it, I'll you know see if I can respond and help in that regard. Uh, if I see something that I think I can help with, I'll I may speak up. So uh, that's a place to go. It's also a useful place because there's a lot of good guidance 
Uh, some some better than others in terms of getting guidance from other users. Uh, some are very active, right? Uh, specifically, the Arizona and New Jersey sites are very active uh, and have a lot of things going on. So it's very useful if you're a member of those societies, get involved in that. If you've not looked at Connect on those places, look at it. It's a very useful place to go, especially when dealing with state law-specific issues. Uh, really, really helpful. And for those of you in other states, I suspect it will become very helpful as you try to deal with these pass-through entity taxes that just about half. Now, we have 21 states that have adopted those, and they're all different based on each state. So there's a lot of good support there in that. Otherwise, we will see you here. We'll see you back here next week as we close out the month of January. Yeah, next Monday, this 31st. We've done with a month. We're one-twelfth of the way through the year. Wow. And heading straight forward into tax season. So I'll see you then. Take care. We'll see you back here next week uh, for more here on Current Federal Tax Developments.